Acts chapter 10. Thought I'd talk this morning. Something the Lord kind of had laid up on my mind. Uh, the uh, there's a lot of talk goes around the internet. A lot of discussions, debates, arguments, I guess sometimes, and everything on uh, when does salvation take place? Um, this salvation that something happened that was declared before all things were made? Was it something that happened in time at the cross? Is it something that happens whenever you believe? Uh, is it whenever you are baptized? Uh, a lot of people use the word saved uh, in the context of whenever they first come to know the Lord, whenever they uh, what we would call uh, when they were converted, whenever they granted repentance and faith, uh, they would use that the term salvation there. Saved, I was saved on such and such date, or I was saved here or there or wherever. But <clears throat> the discussion goes deeper than just uh, uh, the timing of salvation. Was it eternally? Was it at the cross? Was it in time when we believed or anything? It goes deeper than just the timing, although that's very important. Uh, and I believe that the Scripture bears these things out. But it goes to the fact of what actually is salvation. Okay? And do we in time experience that salvation or actually receive or get that salvation? Are we actually saved at that point whenever we believe or whenever we are born or whenever we are whatever um, when is it that we have been saved and is our hearing the gospel believing the gospel uh, what saves us you know there are a lot of people even among those who believe in sovereign grace who teach that uh, it is the preaching of the gospel and then the hearing and believing of the gospel that uh, one is now saved you're saved because you heard the gospel and believed the gospel, and therefore you're saved at that point. Uh, and so my question or my message this morning is wanting to deal with, does the Bible teach that we are saved because of what we believe or what we know? Is it the knowledge that we have been given by God? Is it the faith that we have been given by God? Is it the belief, the point of belief when Jesus saved us. When Jesus saves his people from their sin, when Jesus justifies his people, when Jesus sanctifies his people, when Jesus does these things, is it based upon our beliefs, believing something? Uh, and of course, among sovereign grace believers, there's also the discussion of whether you have to believe so much of this, and if you're not believing so much of this, then you're not, you know, some may even say not elect, some like myself, would say that if somebody's not believing the true gospel of God's um, uh, imputed righteousness by sovereign grace, uh, by Christ's finished work alone, uh, based upon Christ's finished work alone, they might be elect, but they're just not yet believers. They've not been brought to 
uh, repentance and faith yet. They still have not yet been um, converted by God. And so, can there be Armenians who are elect of God? Absolutely. I was an Armenian. But am I elect of God? I hope so. I've been given a hope in Christ. I believe that He is my salvation. I look towards Him as my righteousness alone and uh, and everything. And, I, you know, I was an Armenian. I, I believed in free will. I believed it was based upon my decision that I had to make the choice uh, either to accept Him or to reject Him. Yeah, I believed all those things for many, many years. Does that mean that I wasn't saved? No, I was saved. I was saved even whenever I was in a state of unbelief. As is all God's children are saved during their state of unbelief. They may not be converted. They may not be given faith. They may not be showing forth the works and the or the fruits of the works of righteousness which the Holy Spirit works in us. They may not be showing forth those things uh, at the moment, at that time, but yet they are truly saved. Why? Why are they saved? Well, because salvation has nothing to do with what we do. It has nothing to do with what we know. It has nothing to do with where we go to church. It has nothing to do with any of those things. Salvation is based solely upon God's predestination and Christ's finished work and the Spirit's quickening and giving life. Now, the quickening and giving life, that comes as a result of being elected. It comes as a result of Christ dying for us. The finished work of Christ on our behalf, Christ is our substitute, is what purchased all the inheritance, is what purchased all the blessings and the benefits of salvation for His people. And the Spirit is the one who is the one who works these works within the child of grace. And it is God who, before the foundation of the world, declared these things to be so. So, our salvation has nothing to do with what we do in time. It has nothing to do with what we know, how much or how little has nothing to do with where we go to church. Now, are those things important? Absolutely they are. Where do you go to church? Is that important? Absolutely it is. We should not be going to a church that preaches a false gospel. We have warnings of that all through the Scripture. Jesus in Revelation, He Himself is calling His people out of the harlot. And whenever I say the harlot, I'm talking about anything that preaches a false gospel. Some may call it an Armenian church, some may call it Catholic, Catholicism, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, they may call it, you know, all these other names of all these other different groups. You may go to some cult church or you may go to some whatever. All of them are part of one harlot church. There is Christ church, everything else is a counterfeit. There is Christ's gospel, everything else is a false gospel. There is the truth and everything else is a lie. And so, is it important where you go to church? Absolutely it is. We need to be going to the church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to go to a church that is based and, and functions and, and is ordered by the word of God and not by our whims, not by our emotions, not by what we think. Okay? And so, salvation has nothing to do with whether you've been dipped in water 
or been sprinkled with water or been waved a wet rag at, you know? It has nothing to do with that. But is that important? Absolutely it is. Does the Bible prescribe how we should be baptized and who should be baptized and who should be doing the baptizing? Absolutely it does. The Bible teaches that Christ gave the ordinance of baptism to the local church to administer. The local church administers baptism and the ones that Christ give to baptize are those who believe the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who believe the true gospel of Jesus Christ are commanded to be baptized in water and the way that they are to be baptized is by full immersion. They are to be completely submerged. Does that have anything to do with your salvation? No, but that is how we show forth that we identify and believe and identify with our union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection and our being in Him, and that being His, our, him, him being our substitute, and that we are accounting that that is our death, burial, and resurrection, that He is our righteousness. All that is what we proclaim. So if you're a child of grace and you've not been baptized, you need to be baptized. If you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized. Christ commands us to be that. But does that save us? No, it does not save us. Does that wash away your sins? No, it doesn't. It's a picture of your sins being washed away, but it is not the actual washing away of your sins. The washing away of your sins is by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's that's why we sing the song, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what washes away our sin. is the work of Jesus Christ alone. So salvation does not depend upon what we know, what we don't know, where we go to church, what ordinances we've fallen under. It doesn't have to do with any of that. However, those things are important. We need to follow the Bible's prescription for how that should be done. Find a church that preaches those things and practices these things. And, and and there we find fellowship one with another there. But salvation, brethren, goes back to the work of Christ alone. We are saved by His work, and that is an effectual work, meaning that it is applied to our account. It is applied to our record. It is applied to who we are before we are ever born. Okay? And so what happens in time is just the manifesting of that. What happens in time is just the evidential work of what God has already predestinated before the foundation of the world. What is happening in time is the revealing of that, the knowledge of that, us growing in the grace and knowledge of that, salvation that was already given to us in times past. We find that, before we get to the part in Acts that I'm getting to, turn to 2 Timothy, a verse that we're well acquainted with. I use this verse quite often. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 9. It says, Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. So see there, brethren, it doesn't matter what you know, what you don't know, where you go, and what you've done when you get there. Okay? It's not according to our works. And I would even include that doesn't have anything to do with our good works that is wrought out in us by the Holy Spirit. Our salvation has nothing to do with our fleshly works 
or the spiritual works that is wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. Salvation has nothing to do with works, period. Good works or flesh works, bad works. It has to do with the work of Jesus Christ alone. So he says here, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us when? When we believe? When we gain knowledge of the gospel? When we became Calvinists? Although we don't believe in Calvinism. To me, that's an offensive thing anyway. Uh, did, he, did we, did he, it was it according to his purpose and grace which was given us whenever we believed? Whenever we joined the church? Whenever we was baptized? Whenever we did enough good works? No, what? When did he give this salvation to us? He gave it to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's when we were given salvation. That's when we were given salvation. Salvation began before the world began. Salvation was secured. Salvation was manifested in the coming of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. It showed that God had saved His people by the work of Jesus Christ and declared it to be so by the coming of Jesus Christ accomplishing all that the Father had given Him to do in the covenant of the grace. Look what it says. All that's eternal. All that that we just read in verse 9 is before the foundation of the world and is eternal. But look at verse 10. But is now made manifest. We've talked about this word before. What does the word manifest mean? It means brought to light. To make, to make evident. Okay? We are made evidence. I've used this illustration before in shipping and receiving. Uh, there's a manifest. Uh, it shows what all's in there, right? Uh, whenever uh, at work we will go and install a new x-ray room. Whenever the x-ray room gets there on the truck, okay, there's this truck, there's all this kind of equipment in there, and we don't have any clue what all's in there. I mean, we have a clue what's in there because we know what goes in the x-ray room. But we have this truck, you don't see anything in there, and the guy gets out of the truck and he hands this paperwork, and on this paper, it has everything listed on there that's in that truck. It's the manifest. It's revealing everything that's come in this shipment. This is what's in this shipment right here. Okay? Whenever you fly on an airplane, an airplane has a manifest. It has everybody that's contained in this airplane. So that if it ever crashes and they're starting to look for people, they have a manifest. They know who was exactly on this plane and who wasn't on this plane. So what does the manifest do? It reveals who all was actually in the plane. Okay? Well, whenever we talk about being manifested, we are saying that something that already was, see the x-ray room was already in there, and this paper just reveals what's already there. Okay? It already reveals what's there. So, but is now made manifest. What is now made manifest? The salvation that was given us before in Christ Jesus, before the world began, is now made manifest. It's beginning to become evidential. It's becoming to be shown. It's becoming to be uh, revealed, to be known, brought to light. Right? That's the word that we're going to see here in a minute. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life 
and immortality to light through the gospel. So see, the gospel was never intended to give life. The gospel, the preaching of the gospel, was never meant to give life. It was meant to bring life to light. It's to reveal that we had life before the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus already. Our life was hid with Christ in God before the foundation of the world. And so that light that is shown is shown by the gospel. What is the light that flicks on and shows, ba ba ba, there it is. It's the gospel. The gospel tells us or manifests to us what was already there. So whenever people hear the gospel being preached and all of a sudden now they begin to believe it and they repent of what they used to believe and they turn from what they used to believe and what they thought was how you performed righteousness before God and realize that righteousness can only be had if Christ does it for you and that we're only trusting Him. Whenever the point comes, whenever we begin to believe that and we receive that as our own, say, yes, that's how I've been saved. That's who I'm looking to. That's who I'm trusting in. I'm not trusting in my own words. At that point when we begin to do that, that's not when we were saved. That's the manifesting of the salvation that we already had. It's the revealing of the salvation that was already purchased and wrought out or or purchased for you and is now being wrought in you. Whenever I use that word wrought, I mean worked in you. That's what that means. It's being worked in you. That salvation is being worked in you. Well, how is salvation being worked in me? The Holy Spirit is granting you the ability to repent of false thinking and to believe or have faith in Christ alone. See, that's being revealed. It's being manifested. The life has always been there, but it's now being revealed. We've always had this life. It was hid with Christ in God. But now, in this vessel of flesh, that life is made manifest. And we see faith. We see belief. We see repentance. We see these things. And immortality. The gospel brings forth and shows forth. And a lot of times, people don't really deal with that part of it. Now, we say that we have eternal life. But a lot of people believe that we get eternal life the moment that we believe. As soon as we begin to believe, then God gives us eternal life at that point. If that was the case, then eternal life is not eternal. It was partial from that point forward. But eternal life is that very thing, eternal life. And that eternal life is actually Christ's life. It's actually Him. It's His life that we receive. We receive His life. That's why Jesus uses the illustration of a of a uh, of, uh, of I am the vine and you are the branches. That life that goes into the branch comes from that vine. That tree out there, those branches that are out there, you see, some of them are dead and some of them are 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 alive. Why is that? That's because the life of that tree flows into those branches. Some of those branches don't have life that flows into them. They look like a tree. You think it might be part of the tree, but there is no life in that. Just as in now in our in churches, you'll find there are some that look like Christians 
talk like Christians, act like Christians to some degree, but there really isn't no life in them. And there are some that are life, and when it, what, whenever they have life in them, what does it do? They show forth fruit. Well, what is the fruit that the Bible talks about? It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of our labors. It's not the fruit of our works. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit in us. The working of the Spirit in us. Particularly, and I would say majoritively, in doctrine. In belief of what Christ has done. The, the faith in Christ. That's made manifest. But a lot of times we don't talk about that, that the gospel, part of the gospel preaching is to show forth that this life and this immortality that we have is different. And nobody else has that. We have that. We are a peculiar people, the Bible says. We're not like the rest of the world. We're not of this world. Me and my Uncle Tom was talking about this uh, this week and how sometimes we skip over these things. That the Bible says that we are not of this world. What's crazy? We've all—that's all we've ever known—is this world. How is it that we are not of this world? That life that is in the child of grace that comes from above, from not of this world. That's what we have. That eternal life. That eternal life is not of this world. It's from there, wherever God's at, from wherever Christ is. That's where the life comes from. So why do I say all this? Why is this important? Why, why is the distinction? Well, because so many people put so much emphasis, and I'm not saying that, that we should take away emphasis of preaching the gospel, but they say that unless somebody is preached the gospel and they hear the gospel, then they can't be saved. Therefore, that's why we have all these people having to have missionaries running all over the world and thinking that they're saving the world by their preaching of the gospel and everything like that. And there are people being lost and going to hell because nobody ever reached them with the gospel. And that blood can be on our hands because we didn't preach the gospel to somebody and everything. These are all things that come from man's understanding or man's wisdom about the gospel and about salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so we make these distinctions and it's, and it's unfortunate or, or sad that sovereign grace people argue about these things in the fact that they say that we believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, by His, uh, uh, for His glory alone, all the five souls, whatever they are, and everything. But yet, they'll turn right around and say that unless we believe this, then we can't be saved. And go so far to even say that somebody is a non-elect, or say that somebody is a reprobate, or say that somebody... Uh, uh, isn't a child of God because they don't believe in sovereign grace yet. Well, I would have been condemned then for all the years that I was believing in free will and all these other things that I was believing. I would have been condemned by everybody that believes sovereign grace if that was the case. I'd be condemned on that part. But it was in due time, in God's time, that He revealed His Son in me. That it was made manifest. There was a time that God had appointed for the Holy Spirit to give me understanding and grant me repentance. As it is with every child of grace. Now, back to Acts 10. Why do I say that? Well, I believe that there is a place in the scriptures that shows forth this very thing. Well, number one, I believe the scriptures teach that 
that salvation is by the work of Jesus Christ alone, and it isn't by preaching of the gospel. But there is importance in the preaching of the gospel. We're to preach the gospel. We do that. We don't believe in not preaching the gospel. We are accused of that because we believe in predestination and election, especially absolute predestination and election. We we are we are often uh, uh, said to to not believe in preaching the gospel, and that's not true. We believe in preaching the gospel. We just know what the Bible teaches about who the gospel is for and who's going to hear it, and and what the purpose of the gospel is. It's not to cause people to be quickened. It's not to cause people to get saved. Okay? So, Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, we see the story of Cornelius, and I believe that Cornelius is a great example of a man who was born from above already before he ever heard the gospel or ever met Peter. I believe that Cornelius was a man that was born from above and had yet been granted repentance and faith to believe the gospel. He had not heard the gospel. But yet God still had saved him. And there was some form of activity of the work of the Spirit in him to some degree. Okay? And I believe whenever the Bible teaches that there are uh, among the, the those who are the uh, made in the good soil, whenever they spring up, that some are tenfold, some are twentyfold, some are fortyfold, some some have little faith, some have much faith, and it is Christ who deals out or meets out or measures out that amount of faith to each one of His children. Okay. And I believe Cornelius was one of these men who God had already saved because of Christ, who was elected before the foundation of the world, sanctified in Christ Jesus, justified by the blood of Christ Jesus, completely saved, but yet had not been granted repentance and faith and had not yet understood or been revealed his salvation. And I believe this is is bore out in the Word of God here. So let's look at Acts chapter 10. Now I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read the whole, whole verse, so bear with me. And then we'll talk about it. It says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision evidently at about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he said he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. So his prayers and his alms come up before as a memorial before God. He says, And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodges with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them, then waited on them, uh, that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto him, he sent them to Joppa. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh into the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And when he had become very hungry and would have eaten, but while they uh, made ready, he fell into a trance. 
and saw heaven open, and a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners, and let down to the earth. Wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. These were things that the Jews were not allowed to eat, right? He said, Then there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. Now that's very important. What God has cleansed, do not call that common or unclean. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry of Simon's house and stood before the gate and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise therefore, and get thee down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius, and said, Behold, I am he whom ye seek. What is the cause whereof, wherefore ye are come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, and one that feared God, and of the good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by an holy angel to send for thee into the house, and to hear words of thee. Then called he him uh, he them in, and lodged them. And on the morrow Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa, Joppa accompanied him. And the morrow after they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for him, and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him, and fell down at his feet, and worshipped him. Okay, now here's a man that feared God, been praying to God, given alms, had good report, uh, the Bible says was a just man, but yet here he is, he comes and he falls at the feet and begins to start worshipping Peter. That kind of sounds crazy, don't it? He says, but Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. Now let me just say this on a side note. I don't mean to get off on this too much, but the Catholics believe that Peter was the first pope. And you see how much the Catholics revere the pope, all the pomp and circumstance around the pope, how all the gold and all the stuff that he wears, the hats, the rings, the staffs, all the junk that they do and how they would dare not say anything bad about the Pope and how they kiss his hand and ring and all that kind of stuff and how they give all this reverence to the Pope. The Pope himself declares that he is the vicar of Christ or that he is the, the mediator between God and man that they come to him and he's the one who mediates salvation to the people. Okay, so the Pope uh, is this and all these people worship the Pope. And they believe that Peter was the first pope. Well, here, Peter is saying, don't worship me, I'm just a man. So that should tell us something about, <laughs> we shouldn't be worshiping the pope, okay, he's just a man. Besides, it's a false uh, church anyway. He said, and Peter took him up, saying, stand up, I myself also am a man. 
And as he talked with him, he went in and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, Ye know how that it is unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company, or come unto one of another nation. But God hath shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So Peter began to understand that what God was showing him with those animals coming down and him to kill and eat those things and everything and not call them things common that God has cleansed uh, had to do with the Gentiles. Okay, the inclusion of the Gentiles. They were not supposed to, the Jews were not supposed to mix and mingle with the Gentiles unless the Gentiles had converted to Judaism. Okay? That was the only way that they could mix and mingle with, with, with the Gentiles. And so for the fact that Peter came into the house of this Gentile showed that Peter had been taught by God that all things, Jew and Gentile, had been brought together into one and formed that there were people of God from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. And so he knew that he was being called to Cornelius because Cornelius was not common or unclean. Therefore came I unto you without gainsaying, as soon as I was sent for, I asked therefore for what intent ye have sent for me. Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, and thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and sit, uh, call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged in the house of one Simon, the tanner by the seaside, who when he cometh shall speak unto thee. Immediately therefore I sent to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now therefore are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. So he said, this is what the man told me to do. That's what I did. Here you are, and we're all gathered here to hear whatever it is that God's told you to tell us. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Okay? Why did he say that? Well, because he realizes that God now has brought the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, Paul was already preaching to the Gentiles. Paul had already had the discussion with Peter and the rest of the council at Jerusalem about God sending people to the Gentiles. But now Peter himself was experiencing the very thing God's sending him to preach the gospel to these Gentiles, who also were included in the people of God, who was included in the ones that Christ had saved already. Alright? And so Peter is now realizing that, and he himself is gone to do this. He said, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Now look at that. He that feareth him, and we already were told that Cornelius feareth him, right? He already feared God. Now this was before he heard the gospel and supposedly was saved. See, the preachers of the gospel regeneration group, the preachers of the knowledge for salvation group, the right knowledge to be saved group, 
would have said what Cornelius was believing, the fact that he was bound at somebody's feet and worshiping him, showed he didn't believe the gospel. But yet the Bible said that he feared God and worketh righteousness. He There was righteousness being worked out of him in the fact of what he believed, what he did, how he acted and reacted. Those things were being worked in him by the Holy Spirit. And Peter said... I know that now in every nation God hath those that fear Him and work in righteousness. He said, I know that everyone that feareth and worketh righteousness is accepted with Him. Is accepted. Currently. He already, before he even started preaching this gospel to Cornelius, knew Cornelius is, an, is a man accepted of God. This man is already accepted of God. Now look at verse 36. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea, and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, who they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people, and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. To, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remissions of sins. Okay, he's preaching the gospel now to Cornelius. Verse 44, While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter. These were the Jews that came with Peter from Joppa. Because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost, where they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Now this isn't the tongues that you hear of in these Pentecostal churches today where they're like, that you see on TV, Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and all these guys that are acting like idiots. Okay, This is not the biblical tongues. The biblical tongues were actual languages that were being spoke. People were speaking in languages that they did not know, but yet God had given them a gift to be able to speak in a language that they had never learned and proclaim the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ in another language to people that knew that language. Okay? That's what tongues were. Tongues were something that was a gift to be able to proclaim the message. But there was another reason that gifts were given. The gifts were given, especially the gifts of tongues, was given as a sign to Jews that God was working in the Gentiles that God was also doing what he was doing and that this whole Judaic system had been crumbled to the ground and left desolate and that what 
Christ had built, began to build there while he was there in the formation of the church, in the laying of the foundation of the apostles, with the teachings that he'd given them, the faith once delivered to the saints, that all those things, that as he began to build those things, that um, uh, that uh, uh, everything that was there, that those people that heard that, that God had included them in all of that. And that the, that the Jews who were rejecting that, whenever they seen them speaking in tongues, that brought their memory back to the Old Testament, which said that people with, that would be talking in unknown language, or be talking in languages, in other languages, would be a sign of their destruction. And it very well was. It was the sign of the destruction that was to come upon Jerusalem in AD 70 whenever God brought in the Romans to literally destroy all of Jerusalem and millions upon millions of Jews were killed during that time. God destroyed it destroyed all as He had promised He would. And so what this is saying is not that we ought to evidence our salvation by whatever, it is showing that this right here was a sign because those Jews that came down, it was a sign to them that what's being preached in this gospel is true. What God has been doing in bringing in the Gentiles is true. And so it linked them with the first believers, the first church. Uh, and so he says, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word, and they that were circumcised of the circumcision, which believed, were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles he also poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues, and magnified God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water, that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost, as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, then pray they uh, then pray they him to tarry certain days. Okay, so when Paul or Peter preached the gospel, Cornelius and them believed the gospel. The Holy Spirit empowered them to hear and believe the gospel. They began to believe the gospel. Showed an evidence this gift of the Holy Spirit that was given to them as a sign to the Jews that of their inclusion. And what did Peter do? Peter commanded them to be baptized. That's what we ought to do. Whenever someone shows forth that they believe in Christ Jesus and they believe the true gospel, that they should be baptized. That's what we ought to do. If you're here today and you're believing the gospel and you've not been baptized, you should be baptized. But let's go back, because what I want to talk about is Cornelius. Was Cornelius saved before he heard that gospel and believed? I believe he was. I believe he most certainly was. If you'll first notice, look back at, at the beginning of chapter 10, verse 2. If you first notice, whenever we uh, uh, see what happens here, we see that before Peter came to uh, Cornelius, before Cornelius had heard the gospel, the Bible says that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his house. Now that word devout there, uh, that word translated here in the New Testament uh, is translated godly. Okay, that word means godly. He was a godly man. Cornelius was a godly man before he heard the gospel, before Peter came and preached to him. 
before his ears were given to hear and believe and to show forth evidence of belief. He was a godly man. We see that in 2 Peter 2.9. That's That word is used. Look with me if you would at 2 Peter 2.9. So you know that I'm not just making this up to fit my narrative here. 2 Peter 2.9, the same Greek word is found here in the ninth verse of chapter 2 of 2 Peter. It says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. That word godly there, same, same Greek word used for devout. The word that God uses, the word that God defines devout is not someone who is stuck, sticks with it necessarily, as much as it is he's a godly man. Okay? And so from the Bible we also know that those who fear the Lord are the ones who possess God's salvation. Turn with me, if you would, uh, to uh, Psalms chapter 85. The Bible says Cornelius was not only a godly man or a devout man, but he was a man who feared the Lord. (coughs) Look at Psalms 85 and look with me if you would at verse 9. Psalm 85 verse 9. It says, Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him. That glory may dwell in the land, in our land. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him. One of the things that, that showed forth that the Fear of God evidences is that we are His. Those who fear the Lord are His. That His salvation uh, has come to them. It's only those who are saved that fear the Lord. Because the Bible also says that the unbeliever or the are are the ones who are are reprobate, the ungodly, they do not fear the Lord. There is no fear of God in them. They do not reverence him. Cornelius was giving reverence to God even though he didn't know the gospel. He was giving reverence to God. So does that mean we call him a brother in Christ? Well, no, we can't call him a brother in Christ until he believes the gospel. Does that mean he was still saved? Yeah, he was saved. He was saved. Some people are going to say, so you mean to tell me that there can be saved people who don't believe the God, saved unbelievers? Absolutely. Every one of God's people were saved in Christ at the cross and none of them had yet believed. It's as simple as that, people. Our salvation is in Christ, not in our believing. The believing is the evidence of our salvation. So here we see that he was a man who feared God. So he was a devout man or a godly man. He was one that feared God. All Both of these are evidences of the Spirit of God in him, right? Now look at Psalms 103. Psalms 103. And verse 17. It says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. So the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. God didn't show his mercy upon Cornelius whenever he believed. God doesn't give his mercy on us at the moment of our belief. He gives his mercy upon us from the foundation of the world. 
He shows us mercy by choosing us, by putting us in Christ Jesus. He shows mercy on us by sending His Son to die as a substitute in our place. He spares us. He gives us mercy. He didn't give Christ mercy. Christ received all the punishment of our sin. But here it says here that Cornelius feared God, and the Bible here says that God's mercy is from everlasting to everlasting to those that fear Him. If you're a fearing person, that means that the mercy of God has been given to you. So the mercy of God had already been given to Cornelius. Look, if you would, at Psalms 147. Psalms 147, look with me, verse 11. The Bible says, The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear Him, in those that hope in His mercy. So here we see that God does what? He taketh pleasure in them that fear Him. Cornelius feared God. God had found pleasure in showing mercy to Cornelius. Why? Because he believed God? No, he had not yet believed the gospel yet. But because he was God's child, because he was born of the Spirit, because he was in Christ Jesus and received all the benefits that salvation brings, it was God's pleasure to show him mercy. <clears throat> Look, if you would, at Romans... or Well, while we're there, Psalms 36, 1. While we're in Psalms. Psalms 36, verse 1. This is what I was saying just a minute ago. It says, The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. The wicked have no fear of God. But yet Cornelius had the fear of God in him. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 18. Romans 3.18. Let's start at verse 1. It says, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God, for what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy, uh, in thy saying, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our righteousnesses, if our righteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. 
They are all gone out of the way, and they are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open, open sepulcher, and their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is in their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known there is no fear of God before their eyes? Now we know that what things soever the law said, that said to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by law is the knowledge of sin. Now as you see here, it says here, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Those who have not been born from above, who are still natural, have no fear of God at all. But yet, Cornelius had the fear of God. So Cornelius exemplified characteristics of those who were children of God, who have been born of God, but yet all this was before he had ever heard and believed the gospel. Now, the second thing I want us to look at, if you'll turn back to uh, Acts chapter 10, is that in verse 4 we see, And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. So Cornelius' prayers were come up for a memorial before God, before he had ever heard the gospel and believed. Uh, he had, his prayers had come up as a memorial before God. Now, if you'll turn with me to Proverbs chapter 15, we learn something about the prayers coming before God. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 29. says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he heareth the prayer of the righteous. Now we already know that in Acts chapter 10 and in verse 22, the scriptures record that Cornelius the centurion was a just man and one that feared God. One who is just is righteous. Now, it's not his own justness that makes him righteous. It's not his own righteousness that is taken into account of. But it's because Christ has justified him. And therefore, the righteousness of Christ is given to him on his behalf. Uh, uh, he was a man who not only feared God, but God heard his prayers. And the Bible says that God only hears the prayers of the righteous. Those who have been justified in Christ Jesus. Meaning already saved. The prayers of Cornelius, the unbeliever, was heard by God. Why? Because he was a just man. He was a righteous man. Not in and of himself. Yes, he was an unbeliever still. He had not heard the gospel and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He believed in God. He believed in something that was there. He, he'd give honor to God for who God was. But yet, salvation was already his. 
I know people are saying, well, you're treading on fine water there because you're saying that there could be people that could be saved that don't know that they're saved and going to heaven never knowing Jesus Christ. That's not what I'm saying. The Bible clearly teaches. We don't go to extremes, okay? What does the Bible say? Does the Bible say what it's saying about Cornelius? Absolutely it does. Did Cornelius believe the gospel before Peter came to him? No, he didn't. Or he wouldn't have been falling at the feet of Cornelius and, and worshiping him. He would have known more about what Peter was going to talk about before Peter got there, but he didn't. That's why Peter was sent to him, was to preach what Cornelius didn't know. But that wasn't when he was saved. That wasn't when he was saved. So he was a righteous man, not in and of himself, but because of what Christ did. And some are going to say, like I said, some are going to say, well, do you believe that people go to heaven never knowing Christ? No, because the Bible also says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. That word come there means to believe on me. All the Father gives me shall believe on me. See, there was no way that Cornelius was going to get out of this life with not have been having given faith and believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saying, well, Mike, you're saying that there could be people that come to be given faith before they ever hear the gospel? Absolutely, I believe they can. You have to be given faith first to be able to receive that which your faith clings to. We have to be given the capacity of faith so that whenever we hear what faith clings to comes, we can cling to it. We can hold to it. We can receive it. We can believe it. It That that quality, that, that, uh, that work of faith has to be there before. God has to give us, grant us repentance and faith before we can ever believe the gospel. And so therefore, the preaching of the gospel, it doesn't matter if you ever hear the gospel until God grants repentance and faith, then you will never hear what's being said in the gospel. And there are people all over this world that hear the gospel week after week after week after week who never have heard it in the spiritual man until God opens up their ears. Was Paul an elect of God? Absolutely he was. Before he was on the road to Damascus? Yes, he was. Was he a child of grace? Absolutely he was. Was he saved before he went on the road to Damascus? Yes, he was. Why was he saved? Because he was in Christ Jesus, who was his substitute. Did Paul believe the gospel before he was on the road to Damascus? No, he didn't. Matter of fact, he was out persecuting those who were preaching that gospel on his way to Damascus to persecute the church that was spread there to preach the gospel. And he was there because he did not believe that gospel. But was Paul saved? Absolutely. He was saved as much as anybody else was saved. But what does the Bible say about Paul? Whenever the Lord was pleased to reveal his son in me. That was on the road to Damascus. He was pleased to reveal my salvation. To reveal my Savior. To reveal the gospel, the truth of the gospel to me. When God was pleased to do that, I believe. When did Cornelius do that? When God was pleased to reveal that to him. When did he do that? When Peter came and preached to him. But was he already saved? Absolutely he was already saved. 
So God hears the prayers of the righteous. You can only be righteous if Christ died for you. And if Christ died for you, then you're saved. Now, the third thing, and we're just about done here. Look at verse 34 and 35. I want you to notice here, in verse 34, it said, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. See, Peter realized that Cornelius feared God and that righteousness was being worked in Cornelius. And therefore, Cornelius was accepted of God and therefore being accepted of God was the candidate to whom the gospel should be preached. And what did Peter begin to do? He began to preach the gospel. Whenever Peter had realized that Cornelius showed forth the evidence of one who had been accepted of God because God's work in him, what did Peter do? He began to preach it to him the gospel. You know, oftentimes I speak with people that I work with um, and that I encounter will get to talking, especially if they find out that I'm a preacher. Had that opportunity actually this, this last week with a lady that uh, I work with uh, down in uh, Arkansas. Uh, she professes to be a Christian and she knows that I'm a preacher and every time I'm there we'll strike up some sort of conversation. She'll ask me a question about something that she may be studying or something that she has a question about and everything. And things come up and I present to her the gospel. Why? Because she shows forth the desire to understand those things. She shows forth a desire to know Christ. A desire to be right in her understanding. So I preach those things. There are some people who also profess to be Christians, but as soon as you start talking about Christ to them, they immediately want to change the subject and go to other things, because you can obviously tell outwardly that they're uneasy about what we're talking about, or they have no clue of what you're talking about. They're just, our eyes are just a blaze. Do I continue to keep engaging them with the gospel? No, if they, if they have no desire to hear those things. And I just continue on doing what I was doing, go somewhere else and do something else. But to those who show this, that they desire these things, that they show forth, what do we do? We preach the gospel to them. I was thankful that my uncle continued to preach the gospel to me whenever I showed forth the things of God. Was I saved before I believed sovereign grace? Absolutely I was. My uncle believed that I was accepted of God, and therefore he continued to give me the gospel, preach to me the gospel. What happened? The Lord, at his appointed time, desired to show, or it was his pleasure to reveal his Son in me. To reveal Christ in me, and what Christ had done for me, and to show me what the gospel was actually really about. Was I saved then? No, I'd already been saved. Was I an unbeliever before then? Absolutely I was. Just because you're an unbeliever doesn't mean you're a non-elect. Because all the all the elect at some point was unbelievers. That's why I also believe that unbelief is not the unpardonable sin. <clears throat> then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation. He that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted. 
is accepted. So brethren, as we've seen in this 10th chapter of Acts, we can only conclude that Cornelius was not only set apart, sanctified, providentially kept all his life, providentially moved to where he lived by God, but was also born again and in possession of eternal life before he ever heard the gospel or met Peter. Cornelius is a great biblical example of what the Bible teaches regarding the new birth. That the new birth is based only on the will of God. Look at John chapter 1 and verse 13. John chapter 1 and verse 13. The Bible says, Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are born by the will of God. We are born of God, by the work of God. Not by the work of the flesh. So it's necessary before a man can even believe or see the kingdom of God that they be born again. So the fact that Cornelius already was fearing God, was a righteous man, a devout man, that all these things was given of his alms, that those things were evidence that he had already been born again, but just not have been granted repentance and faith at the time. Look, if you would, at John Chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We have to be born again before we can believe. We have to be born again before. And if we're born again, then that means we're already saved, brethren. That's not we getting saved. That is already saved. See, lots... Uh, lost and wicked sinners, they do not accomplish their own new birth. See, we don't birth ourselves. The preacher don't birth you whenever he preaches to you. See, it's only when a man is already born again that he has any desire, just like Cornelius, to hear and obey the gospel message. What did Peter, whenever God said, hey, I want to send this man to come down here to tell you some things, of course, Cornelius probably had already heard of who Peter was. And what did he do? He called all of his kinsmen and all of his servants and all of his household, gathered them together, and they were sitting and they were waiting for Peter to arrive. And they said, hey, we're all here. We're ready to listen. What do you have to say to us? What did God tell you to come tell us? We're ready to listen. See, the only person that's born again has any desire to hear that and to obey that gospel. Look, if you would, at John chapter 5 and verse 24. The Bible says... <clears throat> Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath already everlasting life. When Cornelius believed on the gospel on Jesus Christ, whenever he heard the word, remember it said, and he heard that word? Cornelius heard what Peter had preached. The hearing ear, the Lord giveth. The seeing eye, the Lord giveth. See, those things are all because we've been born from above already, not to get it, because we've already had it. Right? But here it says, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is already passed from death unto life. Listen, we don't pass from death unto life at the moment that we believe. We already have passed from death unto life. 
When do we do that? In the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus raised from the dead, we raised from the dead. We were brought from death to life when Jesus rose from the dead. That was our resurrection. We were raised in Christ Jesus. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. More familiar verses that we talk about a lot of times. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. It says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The fact that Cornelius was receiving these things, believing these things, had already begun by his godly attitude, by his godly life, by his devoutness, by his justness, his righteousness being worked out in him. And again, this is the Spirit working these things. It's not the things that he's doing in and of himself. It's the Spirit that's wrought in these things in his heart. Is because he understands these things because he is already a spiritual man and not a natural man. The natural man cannot perceive. Therefore, nobody can believe before they're born again. You have to be born again before you believe. Nobody can hear and understand before you're born again. Cornelius was already born again. He didn't get saved when he believed. I believe that there's other passages of Scripture that teach these things. If you want to turn, you can. Uh, I'll turn to them real fast. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. The Lord speaking of the prophet Jeremiah He said, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, meaning that I have set you apart, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. God had already called and set Jeremiah apart to be a prophet unto God. Now, he's not going to send the unsaved man. He's not going to send the unrighteous man. He's not going to send the unjust man, the non-child of God, as the prophet, to be the prophet of God. He's already the prophet of God. God had already predestinated him for this work before he was ever born. In Luke chapter 1, verse 15. Luke chapter 1 and verse 15. Bible says, speaking of John the Baptist, this is the angel speaking to John's uh, John the Baptist's mother. It says, For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Now how can you be filled with the Holy Spirit and not be his? Not be saved. Guess what? This was before Jesus even died. John was filled with the Holy Spirit before Jesus even died. Before the Spirit ever came down upon the church on the day of Pentecost. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of people who say that the Old Testament saints they weren't uh, they weren't filled with the Holy Spirit like we are today. They weren't filled with the Spirit. Well the Bible says if they have not the Spirit of Christ, they are none of his. In Peter, we learn that those men in the Old Testament, those prophets were looking forward and talking about Jesus, about the Messiah and the things that they were prophesying because of the Spirit of Christ that was in them. 
The Spirit of Christ was in them. And then Christ was already Christ in the Old Testament. Right? But here we see John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Was that before John ever heard the Gospel? Absolutely it was. Romans chapter 9. Before the boys had done anything good or bad. Romans chapter 9 verse 10. <coughs> Romans chapter 9 and verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Was Jacob saved before he was born? Absolutely he was. Did Jacob do anything good to get it? No, he didn't. Did God base his election and salvation of Jacob on anything that Jacob did? No. Does he base it on anything that we do? No. Does that include belief? Absolutely. And lastly, what I already quoted a while ago, but let's read it so you can see where it comes from. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15. It speaks of Paul. Paul speaking of himself here. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15. I'll start reading in uh, verse 11. It says, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me, of me, is not after man. So what I'm preaching is not after man. It's from God. For I neither received it of man. So that means that the gospel that he's preaching, he didn't receive a man. He didn't get it from listening to men. He got it from Christ. Christ taught it to him. That's the same way we get it. Brethren. There may be men preaching to us. There may be men teaching to us. We may gain edification from listening to it. It's because the Holy Spirit has already wrought that truth in our heart. And we are testifying that what that man is saying, that man is testifying to the truth. Amen. I believe that. That that makes my heart leap for joy to hear that truth. But the truth was made known to us in a mystic way. If that's what you want to call it. If, they, if people want to call me a mystic, they can call me a mystic all the day long. If that's what you think mysticism is, I don't care what monikers and names people give me. Does the Holy Spirit work irregardless of the works of men? Absolutely they, He does. And can He place within the heart of man faith and belief <coughs> before He sees and knows? Absolutely He can because He has to have that capacity there before He can ever grasp whenever He does hear what's true and knows that's the truth. So if you want to call that mysticism, you can call that mysticism. God just magically puts this faith in them? Absolutely He does. Faith comes by hearing, but hearing comes by the Word of God. How can your faith be built upon? Well, there has to be an establishment of faith first for it to be built. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Faith comes from hearing, <coughs> but the hearing has to come first. <coughs> you have to be given hearing. You have to be given the ability. That's the new birth. In the new birth comes the hearing. The hearing hears with faith, by faith. Faith is that which God has given to us to believe what He says. What He says doesn't make us believers. 
But our faith causes us to believe in what is true when we hear the truth. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has already taught us that's true. But when, excuse me, it said, For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brethren, that's Ephesians 3.3. 3. We're taught things by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond me... My, I, you notice how he says all that Judaic system that they were practicing is called the Jews' religion? It's not Christ's religion. That religion was made desolate. People are trying now to keep that religion. They're trying to mix that religion with Christianity where there were Judeo-Christians. We're not Judeo-Christians. We are not Judeo-Christians. We are not Jews infused with Christianity or Christianity infused with Jewishism. Jewishism, Judaicism, whatever it's called. That house was left desolate. And all these people in the Hebrew Roots movement who are trying to rekindle all the Torah stuff and all the festivals and the feasts, who are looking to all these things and stuff like that, they are looking at the shadow and not the substance, which is Jesus Christ. That was my soapbox. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equal uh, of many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Here it is. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, who sanctified that's what word separated means to sanctify. He sanctified me. I was already sanctified by the time I was born. I was already sanctified. We even thought sanctification came after you believed. Now we're progressively being sanctified. Nope, brethren, we were fully sanctified in Christ Jesus. Not a progressive thing at all. We are set apart in Christ Jesus. Paul was set apart in Christ Jesus from before his mother's womb. He said, and he called me by his grace. See, he was called by the grace of God. In verse 16, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathens. See, God called him and revealed God's Son in him. Why? So that he might preach the gospel among the heathens. Why did God save me those many years ago on the Calvary's tree? Before I was ever born? Why did God, before the foundation of the world, save me and call me, elect me, sanctify me in Christ Jesus, give me life that's hid with Christ? before I was ever created, before anything was ever created? Why did, at some point, God finally reveal Christ in me so that I might preach the gospel? Why does God save any of His people? Because they were elected in Christ Jesus. And He does it at the cross. Everything is purchased at the cross, but when do you experience it? When is it manifested? When God is pleased to reveal His Son in you. When was Cornelius revealed God's Son when Peter came and preached the gospel? Was Cornelius already saved? Yeah, he was. He was. And we can follow the traditions of men. We can follow the confessions and creeds of historians and theologians. Or we can look at God's Word and we can believe what God's Word says about things. If God's Word is clear, then we... Well, whether it's clear or not, it's God's Word. It's still true. But yet we believe what God says about these things. 
Anybody got any questions or any comments? All right, I've gone quite a bit over, so it's about half word prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. <coughs> thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for Christ Jesus in whose life we live and move and have our being. We thank you, Father, that all things were completed in Christ on our behalf. We thank you, Father, for revealing Christ to us, in us. We thank you, Father, for the gospel that declares the mighty works of our Savior, Jesus. And once again, Father, I pray, as always, that if there's any here that is your children, that you grant them repentance and faith, Lord, that they might begin to believe the gospel. And Lord, that you might also draw them to be baptized as you have commanded. That they might follow that commandment to be baptized and that we might add them to the number of the church. That they might come into the labors that we have here in the service of Christ and the worship of God. Lord, we just pray that you just might be with us as we leave this place, that you might keep us safe throughout this week, that you might provide for us, Lord, that you might help us in this day of evil in our country. Father, we do pray for our nation, and we pray for our leaders, that you might give us good leaders. We pray that you might give us people who honor you. We know, Lord, that the flesh cannot do anything to gain your righteousness, Lord, but we know that you can give us good leaders. People that at least hold out in morality of some degree, who turn from some wickedness to some degree, Lord. And, and Lord, we just pray that you give us these leaders, Lord, that you would turn from our country these who are promoting wickedness, laziness, promoting, uh, promoting perversion, in sexuality, perversion in killing babies, perversion in all kinds of things of wickedness, of evil, Satanism, witchcraft and sorcery and all these things, Lord. We just pray, Lord, that you would just bring your people safely again next week as we gather together. But Lord, more than anything, we pray for your return. We see many people talking about your return is going to happen on a certain day within the next day or two. Father, we know that that's been happening for years and years, and we surely don't want to be people who scoff or be skeptical of things. But, Lord, we know that you say in your word that no man knows the day or the hour. But we do trust that you are coming. You've said you would come back. We know that that could happen truly at any time. And we do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, for we desire for your return that we might be delivered from this body of evil, this body of sin, that we might be delivered from this world of wickedness, that we might be with you for eternity. So we pray, Lord, that you would come. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you just keep your church as you've promised throughout these generations. If so, your return doesn't come for another thousand years. We ask, Lord, that you would keep your people and that you might continue to perpetuate the truth of the gospel to every generation just as you've promised. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.